Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's MitoAction Monthly Expert Series. My name is Kyra Mann, CEO of MitoAction. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today as we discuss insights about exercise and nutrition related to mitochondrial disease. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www.mitoaction.org slash resources slash exercise nutrition. If you're joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Everyone in the Mito community understands that there is a delicate balance with nutrition and exercise when you're living with mitochondrial disease. To help us unpack what exercises are good for Mito, how to exercise safely, dietary concerns, and the current state of the Mito cocktail, we are thrilled to welcome today's speaker, Dr. Mark Tarnopoulowski. Dr. Tarnopoulowski is a neuromuscular and neurometabolic clinician scientist who received an MD and PhD in cell biology and metabolism from McMaster University. He currently holds an endowed chair from McMaster Children's Hospital Foundation in the area of neuromuscular and neurometabolic genetic disorders and follows over 500 patients with primary mitochondrial disorders. He has published over 500 peer-reviewed papers and has an H index of 133. His research focuses on pharmacological nutraceutical and exercise therapies for neuromuscular and neurometabolic disorders, aging, obesity, and other disorders that affect the mitochondria and muscle function. He is the founder, CEO, and CSO of Exerkine Corporation, which is a biotechnology nutraceutical company developing therapies for aging, obesity, muscular dystrophy, and mitochondrial disorders. Join me in welcoming Dr. Turner-Polowski. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, I apologize to everyone. I've got uh, the worst man cold of my life. Uh, it's not COVID, I tested, uh, but uh, when I get this with my allergies, oh boy, my nose is completely plugged. So I, if I have to put it on mute, uh, you'll have to excuse me. So uh, thank you again for the introduction. Uh, today we'll focus on exercise, uh, diet, and nutraceuticals in treating mitochondrial disease. Now, let me just, there we go. So from a disclosure perspective, I won't go through all of these, but I've been involved uh, in various uh, speaker capacities, received some honoraria from some companies, which you see listed here. And as was pointed out, I am the founder and CEO of Exocrine Corporation and Stay Above Nutrition. Um, and I will discuss some um, the things that we have uh, put into some of our supplements, uh, just from a disclosure perspective, because we've done a lot of research to try and improve mitochondrial function uh, but of course, that's very useful for aging and obesity, which are the two areas that we're focusing on from a nutritional perspective. Of course, 
We're also looking for new uh, supplements and strategies for mitochondrial disease and muscular dystrophy as well. Uh, that's more of an altruistic uh, um, relationship that we have with MitoCanada uh, in a um, uh, profit sharing uh, capacity and also to provide discounts for people with muscle and uh, mitochondrial disease so that there's minimal to no profit involved. So my life is really centric um, or centered around the mitochondria. Uh, the mitochondria we've been studying for many years. I started out first uh, thinking that I was going to be a, a phys ed teacher and a sports um, medicine doctor. And we did all sorts of studies looking at how athletes respond to exercise. So when people do higher intensity exercise, um, and higher weights, uh, the muscle responds with a hypertrophic response. So it gets big and the muscles get stronger. Uh, when we do um, lower intensity, longer duration activities, such as endurance exercise, we get what's called mitochondrial biogenesis. So we spent years to decades uh, doing muscle biopsies, following people longitudinally to identify the various um, physiologic processes that accompany these uh, interesting phenotypic changes that happen with exercise so we could better understand them and apply them to our patients. And of course, the two main groups of patients that I see are those with primary genetic mitochondrial disease and muscle disorders that result in atrophy. So here you can see a young boy who um, uh, has severe muscle uh, atrophy proximally and weakness and has a difficult time getting up from the floor. This is Duchenne muscular dystrophy. What we've realized is that in muscular dystrophies uh, and in many of the common diseases that I have listed here, as I mentioned, obesity and diabetes, uh, there is a secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. It may be that uh, even long COVID is a form of secondary mitochondrial dysfunction, and we just received a grant to further evaluate that and hopefully come up with some therapies for this. So when we think about the mitochondria, part of the reason why I think it's such an important um, organelle, an important aspect of aging and many disorders is that when you think about any uh, disorder, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, muscular dystrophy, we see there's a variety of cellular processes which can be linked to the mitochondria. So I really think that it's a central component of many of these uh, disorders. So uh, if we start with the mitochondria, if it's not functioning properly, it can release factors which activate something called apoptosis, uh, which is pre-programmed cell death. And we know in some of the disorders I mentioned, Parkinson's, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, uh, even with aging, uh, that's part of how cells die. Some of you may be familiar with telomeres. These are essentially a replicometer or a, um, a chronometer of our aging. As our uh, DNA replicates, uh, we lose the bits at the end, uh, which are our telomeres. And uh, as they get shorter, cells stop replicating. That's called senescence. So we have here also cellular senescence, which is uh, related to the telomeres, which again are shortened um, when we have mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, you've probably heard of the cytokine storm that happens uh, with COVID, and we see that in various other severe disorders. And uh, what they feel, and there's good evidence for this, is that severe mitochondrial damage can release a variety of factors which can activate the inflammatory pathway. Uh, things like um, uh, cytochrome C, uh, things like mitochondrial DNA uh, leads to an in increased activation of uh, this inflammatory pathway which is reflected by an increase in things called IL-1 beta and IL-18. When the mitochondria don't work, they have sort of a back pressure, which releases these toxic um, um, species called uh, free radicals, um, otherwise referred to as oxidative stress. 
And that in turn can damage the mitochondrial DNA. It can damage proteins and it can damage lipids. So it can be very deleterious to the cell. All of these processes go on with mitochondrial disease and interestingly with aging, and they also can lead to a decrease in protein synthesis, which can contribute to muscle atrophy and weakness. Now, as I mentioned on our uh, left here, uh, this is what I see in the clinic. Our biggest uh, group of muscle disorders are fasciocapular humeral muscular dystrophy, something called inclusion body myopathy, which is a form first of accelerated aging. Um, men are more affected than women. Um, and what was known even 30 years ago is when you do muscle biopsies, in addition to the inflammatory response, there's also accelerated mitochondrial dysfunction in these patients. Uh, myotonic dystrophy type one, I'm gonna tell you about a recent study we did, which showed just how profound the mitochondria are affected in this disorder. And that's something most people didn't even think about before. And of course, I've mentioned human aging. It's the disease, the mitochondrial disease that we all have. Um, and uh, what we find too, if you look at all of these disorders, including human aging, we start to see some of the pathologic features that we use to diagnose patients with mitochondrial disease. So for example, in the muscle biopsy, we can see this pale area of the muscle uh, that is acetochrome C oxidase, which is one of the mitochondrial enzymes, and it's not reacting to the stain. So it is low in activity. And we can see these other things when we go to higher magnification called paracrystalline inclusions, which start to build up and are a canonical marker of mitochondrial disease, but we see it in all of these other disorders. And as mentioned, when the mitochondria don't work, there's a variety of cellular processes, which we feel are targetable either with exercise or targeted and appropriate nutraceutical cocktails. Um, and, you know, essentially a nutraceutical cocktail and nutrition really is a form first of a drug. The only difference is a drug is created um, or it's a manipulation of something that's found in nature, uh, purified and given, whereas um, things like uh, coffee, for example, have, has many chemicals in it, which have pharmacological uh, properties. The difference is that it's a mixture of a variety of things in mother nature, but these can be used if we study them properly as uh, we're trying to do uh, for the last 30 years in uh, my research and now in our company to target these processes to mitigate some of the deleterious effects on the patient. So the benefits of exercise have been well known in the aging arena. Um, I won't uh, dwell too much on this, but essentially what you can see here is that um, on average, if people do regular exercise, and by that we mean 30 minutes, uh, uh, three times a week minimum uh, at a moderate intensity, you get about a four year lifespan extension. More than that, however, we also compress aging. And that is for the last 10 years of life, people have less disability. What this uh, study here shows is that yes, we get this lifespan extension, again, across different levels of uh, obesity. So what it means is that we do get improvements in our lifespan, even if we're overweight or obese. Now, of course, being normal weight or thin and fit uh, is uh, the ideal scenario, but if you're fit and even if you're obese, you still confer benefits. And what's interesting too, is that if we look at the multiple tissues throughout the human body, uh, many of them benefit from exercise. So we always traditionally think of the heart and our muscles getting uh, improvement, uh, but we and others have shown that your eyes, your ears, um, your lungs, your skin can benefit from uh, physical activity, which is why it has such a multiplicity of beneficial effects. This is just another way of looking at it. And that is that 
uh, as we increase our hours of vigorous physical activity, we lower all-cause mortality, which is what I just mentioned, that four-year lifespan extension. But things like diabetes, fractures, osteoporosis, and even cancers, the risk is lower in people who are habitually physically active. And the downside is that many patients with mitochondrial disease find that they get exercise intolerance, so they stop doing it. As I'll show you, that's just the opposite thing that you should be doing is people should be appropriately exercising, build up some strength so they can become more active because we do find uh, certainly with Milas syndrome, about 50% of our patients have diabetes. And part of that is due to inactivity and the disease itself, but that can be partially mitigated with regular exercise. So what about exercise in mitochondrial disease? Well, as mentioned, uh, mitochondrial disease per se, just by its very nature, if the mitochondria don't work, we can't extract oxygen. And therefore our VO2 max or the maximal amount of aerobic capacity is lowered. And that's really a hallmark of mitochondrial disease. The problem is the less you do, the more that becomes a vicious cycle and you become less and less active and your VO2 drops. In fact, VO2 is highly related to mortality. So the lower your VO2, the higher your mortality. And what we found in one of our patient studies with Milas syndrome was VO2 levels that were incredibly low. So as we sit here, our VO2 is around three to four milliliters per kilogram per minute. In one of our studies of Milas syndrome, it was eight mils per kilogram per minute. So that's essentially just getting up and going to the washroom is pretty much these people's maximal capacity. So trying to slowly increase that to give you a better buffer uh, is something that's important. What's interesting too, is that we put a cast on people's legs. These were totally healthy young teenagers and people in their early twenties. And we gave them a leg immobilizer and crutches. And within 14 days, we had a 25% loss of mitochondrial function and mitochondrial mass shrunk by 25%. The point there is when we're inactive, or if let's say we break a leg or a hip, or we have arthritis and we don't move very much, it further damages mitochondria. Now we do know that exercise can increase mitochondrial activity and increase VO2 in healthy people, um, but can that work for people with mitochondrial disease? So there's two types of exercise that have been studied. Um, one is endurance exercise, which I mentioned is more of the aerobic type of activity, things like swimming, cycling, elliptical, um, all of those sort of activities, running, jogging, a brisk walk, et cetera, are forms of aerobic activity. And intuitively that kind of makes sense, right? If you normally increase mitochondria by that type of activity, it would be the first thing to try in patients with mitochondrial disease. So I won't go through all of the literature, just to highlight that two very good reputable researchers uh, this is by John Vissing's group, uh, first author Jeppesen in um, Denmark. And what they did was they studied 20 patients with mitochondrial disease. Um, 14 had point mutations, so things like Milas and MRF, um, et cetera. Uh, the other uh, six had deletions, uh, things like chronic progressive external ophthalmoplegia and Kern-Sayer syndrome. And they also trained healthy controls. So they did a 12-week exercise protocol at 70% of VO2 peak. So again, everyone goes relative to what their level is. So if I took a Milas patient with a VO2 of eight and I put them on a bike and said, okay, try and push as hard as Milos Roglic, who's one of the top cyclists in the Tour de France, you wouldn't last 10 seconds. So everyone has to start at their exercise intensity gradually adapt to it. And that's the sort of general uh, rule, I think, for any patient with disability 
is it's got to be tailored to your disability and you have to measure what your max is so that you can put someone at a lower level to try and bump that ceiling up, which is your maximum. They had them on the bike four times a week, uh, starting at a half an hour, going to 45 minutes. And like um, a traditional able-bodied person, there was an increase in citrate synthase, which uh, reflects your total mitochondria, increase in VO2. And these two usually go um, hand in hand that when you increase mitochondria, increase VO2. And what they found is that the patients responded as well as the controls. Importantly as well, there were concerns that maybe you would damage muscle and it wouldn't be good for patients. Uh, and uh, what they did is muscle biopsies that showed that there was no muscle damage and a thing called CK, which reflects muscle damage, uh, did not go up. In the same issue, a good friend and colleague of mine, Tanya Tavasalo, studied patients with chronic progressive external ophthalmoplegia who had deletions. They did 14 weeks of cycling followed by 14 weeks of deconditioning and showed that the submaximal work rate, which is really when you're doing your activities of daily living, we want that to be submaximal. So we want to push up the max so that when you're doing things day to day, you're not going close to your maximum. So that improved the ability of the muscles to extract oxygen, which reflects your mitochondrial capacity got up. But I thought what was really interesting and important outcome is something called the SF36, which reflects how you feel your quality of life that improved as well. Now, uh, as is the case uh, for many things, if you don't use it, you lose it. When they stopped exercising, people went right back to baseline. Now they didn't undershoot, they went back to baseline. So they had to maintain the activity to maintain the benefits. So what about strength training? Now, one of the things with strength training that we uh, have thought of and that we've found is that some of our patients with Milas syndrome have a very low VO2 max. So their aerobic capacity is profoundly impaired, but we have folks from that first study who had an incredibly low VO2, and yet still their strength was okay. On the flip side, we have people who are weak, but their aerobic capacity is not so bad. So one of the things you could do is, for example, if you had a very low VO2 max, maybe do a little bit of weight training first because that's an anaerobic activity, won't tax your aerobic system, build up some strength and then uh, add in a little bit of endurance. So does weight training work? Again, this is Tanya Tavasalo uh, working with a group in England with Doug Turnbull and they did strength training in eight patients who had CPEO. So that's the large scale deletion with ptosis, ophthalmoplegia, hearing loss, cataracts, swallowing difficulties and muscle weakness. So what they did is they did a regular exercise program three times per week. And this is a pretty standard thing we do with older adults where we start off, where we give them a weight. And the general rule for weight training that we say for all of our patients, muscular dystrophy and mitochondria is you should be able to lift that weight uh, 10 to 12 times, three sets of 10 to 12 reps is our general rule of thumb. So for example, if you start off and you go to the gym and you try to lift something and you can only lift it once or twice, that's too heavy for you. So you need to drop down to a lower weight so you can do three sets of 12 repetitions. Now, if it's so easy that you could probably do 50 reps, you've got to bump the weight up so that by the time you get to that 12th rep, it's starting to get you know, really difficult to do another one. So you're fatiguing in about 10 to 12 repetitions. So using that protocol, what they found was quite a significant increase in uh, leg strength, both by the kicking strength and a thing called leg press. And why these are important is that function of pushing your legs out is what you need to get up from the floor, get off the toilet, go up a flight of stairs, go up a curb, et cetera. So we do think that that knee extension and leg press are important outcomes. 
As was the case in the aerobic activity, there was no increase in CK, uh, which was good. And when they did muscle biopsies, there was no evidence of muscle damage. So patients with CPEO, and they've also done this with patients with Milas syndrome, can improve their strength with properly supervised uh, weight training. And really, as long as you go to the gym and someone doesn't overdo it and you stick with that three sets of 12 reps, most people will do quite well with weight, weight training. So we've mentioned before that other disorders have mitochondrial dysfunction. And this is the study that we recently published in a disorder called myotonic dystrophy type one. So myotonic dystrophy type one is a um, muscle disease. Uh, traditionally, it's thought to be muscular dystrophy, uh, causes structural damage to muscle and, and weakness. And really, uh, as is the case with many neurologic disorders, the therapy is generally supportive. In fact, uh, many people have thought that exercise causes more damage to people with muscular dystrophy. So we took 11 patients who had myotonic dystrophy type one, and we compared them to uh, men and women who are age and sex matched to see you know, what's the difference between an able-bodied person and someone with myotonic dystrophy. And at the cellular level, what's going on here? Then we took the patients and gave them a three-month uh, cycling program, three times a week at 65% of their VO2 peak. Now, again, we got them to that level, and as they got stronger, we kept rechecking and then bumping up the intensity gradually. But we had patients that were as impaired or more impaired than even, even our worst MELAS patients. For example, we had one lady who uh, just on the bike spinning with no resistance only lasted about a minute the first time she started. Eventually, after three months, she could pedal three times a week for 35 minutes at 65% of her VO2 peak. And what did we see? Well, the first thing we saw is myotonic dystrophy, although it's a muscular dystrophy, is also a mitochondrial disease. So if you look here, this is what's called the oxidative phosphorylation protein content with a Western blot. You can see it's down by over 50%. But look at this, after just three months of exercise, it pretty much goes right back to normal. And you can see that across all the different respiratory uh, complexes. Uh, we also essentially did live active muscles, um, a thing called Ouroboros, where we take out muscle fibers and measure the full mitochondrial capacity, and that went right back to normal. You can see here, this is essentially um, a mitochondrial stain. You can see how pale it is, which means those enzymes are not working well, but after training, there was quite an improvement. So the first thing that we learned is that there is sec significant secondary mitochondrial dysfunction, and even with fairly modest exercise, total commitment of 90 minutes a week, uh, we saw a dramatic reversal of that in these patients. Now you might say, well, you know, who cares about that? Does it change their function? So first of all, it was safe, but yes, it did improve function. So the six minute walk test, which is something the FDA loves for evaluation of drugs went up by 47 meters. Now, some of you might say, well, who cares about 47 extra meters if you're walking for six minutes? Well, um, just as an example, there's a muscle disease called Pompe disease, and that has been approved in USA and Canada. Um, as an enzyme replacement therapy intervention for these patients. The enzyme replacement therapy costs a million dollars a year, and the improvement in six-minute walk was 27 meters. So you can see here that exercise alone is, uh, is uh, even more potent, uh, certainly for this uh, group. We also do a thing called timed up and go, where you have to get up, as Aaron's doing here, walk around a pylon and go back and sit down. Uh, and we also have to get up from a chair five times. So all of those things improved. What's interesting, I mentioned before that you lower your VO2, the higher your mortality, it went up by 30%. And also muscle mass went up by 1.6 kilos. 
The other thing that uh, some people have said is, well, what about the robustness? Can people actually maintain exercise benefits over a long period of time? So this is a group uh, with a, a disease called FSH, muscular dystrophy. And uh, recent work has also shown that they have significant secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. I won't get into the uh, pathophysiology. The point is that although there's different genetic reasons for these disorders at the cellular level, the mitochondria really are at the core of this. Now, what we did um, in anticipation of a, uh, a grant we put in is we look back on our patients with FSH dystrophy who exercise uh, regularly three times a week or more over the uh, previous 10 years versus those that sat on their butt and did nothing. And you can see here the difference. So over 10 years uh, period, there was very little change in the kicking strength. And you can see here, Aaron's uh, using a kicking strength device versus a 34% drop in those that were sedentary. In addition, if you look here, this is um, uh, the arm flexion device. And we like the arm flexion and the knee extension because they reflect two of the important determinants of someone's disability. So if you can't feed yourself, comb your hair, reach for things, or use your arms, um, that's not good. And that's why the arm flexion strength is important. And we've already mentioned why knee extension is important. And we found a very similar thing for arm flexion, that there was very little change in those who were exercising regularly versus those who uh, exercise one time a week or less. So let's uh, focus on mitochondrial disease and take a bit of a turn uh, away from exercise and talk a little bit about uh, diet, uh, specific nutrients and uh, mitochondrial cocktails. So mitochondrial disease, uh, I won't get into this in any detail. Everyone knows that the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. They are in every cell in our body except for uh, mature red blood cells but they're very important in uh, tissues that require a lot of oxygen. So the uh, nervous system uh, is important. And that's why uh, we neurologists, you know, for seizures, intellectual disability, optic atrophy, hearing loss, all of those classic features uh, would be referred to a neurologist. And when you see multiple systems involved, you start to think about a mitochondrial disorder. Skeletal muscle, it can either be exercise intolerance or muscle weakness or a combination of both. Um, heart, especially in children, can be involved, which is a very bad prognostic factor. Um, liver, especially in children, uh, especially in the Alpers syndrome, kidneys, um, and in our MILAS patients, uh, uh, both the muscle insulin resistance, as well as damage to the uh, pancreas, lead to an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. In fact, the most common manifestation of the MILAS3243 mutation is maternally inherited deafness because the um, nerve that carries your hearing is very uh, oxidatively uh, in, uh, dependent and also diabetes. So MID-MIDD, maternally inherited diabetes and deafness, number one manifestation of MILAS3243. So let's take a look at um, what people are eating. So what we did a few years ago, and this was published in this uh, journal called Muscle and Nerve, we looked at 51 of our muscular dystrophy patients. And just hang on, because we will talk about mitochondrial patients, because essentially everything that we see here is translatable, and we have measured this in mitochondrial patients. So again, that group that we talked about, myotonic dystrophy and FSH are two biggest groups. And we also looked at some kids with Duchenne dystrophy. So what we did is we recorded their diet um, after giving them detailed instructions how to record it. Uh, twice separated by five months, and then we took the average. So what we did is we took the mean dietary intakes and compared it to the Canadian dietary reference intake, which is essentially the same as the USF uh, RDA. 
So what we have here is in white are adults, green are pediatric patients. And this is the proportion of patients who are not meeting the current Canadian uh, dietary reference intake. So you can see here that over 60% of patients aren't getting enough energy. And that's the key point. And that is if you have uh, weakness, if you have um, exercise intolerance, you tend to do less. In fact, even an able-bodied American, the average uh, able-bodied American only takes 4,000 steps a day. So our society is becoming less and less active. So if you don't move, you have less energy need, therefore you don't take in as much food. Now you might say, well, that makes sense, right? Eat less if you're not um, burning as many calories. The problem is, is that if you don't take in as much food, you become deficient in a variety of nutrients. So you can see here, um, you know, look at vitamin E, 98% of the adults were not meeting the current recommended intake. And this is important because vitamin E is an important antioxidant. Things like thiamine, uh, some of you uh, may be taking thiamine because it's important in complex one function. Uh, it's also important in uh, PDH activation. Riboflavin, an important bypass strategy for complex one defects. But the point here is that if you don't take in enough energy, you become deficient, at least you're taking in less. And as you'll see, you can become deficient in some of these vitamins and minerals. So I mentioned before that I would get to the mitochondrial patients. We had actually done dietary analyses uh, on our patients with mitochondrial disease published uh, many years ago. And we found very similar things uh, in our uh, patients. Again, energy intake was suboptimal in 43% of our mitochondrial patients. What's interesting is that we also found that a, a fairly high proportion of patients were obese, um, but almost an equal number were too thin. And I'm going to get back to that point in just a minute. So the point there is, okay, Mark, people may not be uh, eating as much and they're not getting in as many um, uh, of the nutrients uh, through their food does that actually do anything? Do they actually become deficient? And can we measure that? So what we did is that we um, uh, had a, a program that was really good before where I could check all of my um, orders for different vitamins. And we looked at 1,852 vitamin orders in men and women in patients with neuromuscular disorders. And these are the vitamins we normally check. And what did that show us? What we found was important vitamins in metabolism, things like folic acid, and B12 um, were deficient in anywhere from 10 to about 15% of patients. And you can see here that the mitochondrial patients in maroon of which we had 62 in this study uh, are very similar to those with neuropathy. And neuropathy, the most common cause in North America other than diabetes is vitamin B12 deficiency. But you can see that we had an equal number or the equal proportion of patients with mitochondrial disease who also had B12 deficiency. And why that's important is that this is low hanging fruit. If your B12 is low, it can cause neuropathy, it can cause dementia, it can damage your spinal cord. And you don't wanna miss these deficiencies because they're very amenable to treatment. Um, so the first point I would get across is make sure that you get these things checked, uh, folic acid, B12, uh, and the other big one is vitamin D. These were the old uh, recommendations, which is for prevention of rickets. However, what we found is that with the new recommendations in Canada and the US where they say you should be either 75 or 80 nanomoles, we find that 85% of our patients are insufficient. Now, certainly, you know, this sort of 12 to 10% uh, in the rickets range, that's very severe um, and that needs to be replaced. Uh, but to get to this level, most people need 2000 units of uh, vitamin D supplemented as well. 
All right. So habitual diet, what are some uh, ways that people can uh, perhaps uh, uh, eat a bit more, uh, consume um, better food? And certainly in uh, cases of things like IBM, um, chronic progressive external ophthalmoplegia, oculopharyngeal dystrophy, sometimes there's problems swallowing and therefore you just don't eat as much and that can be a contributor. So we know that energy intake is low and that's probably because people just aren't burning the calories. For some people, it may be that it's hard to prepare food. People are either weak or fatigued, and so therefore it's difficult. Now, uh, certainly in Canada, we have a number of food delivery services that might be helping some folks. For diseases that I mentioned, there can be a fear of swallowing. So certainly if people are choking, if they're coughing after they eat, they really should be getting a swallowing study to check for dysphagia. And in fact, we just published a paper in Chronic Progressive External Ophthalmoplegia which is the most common mitochondrial disease in adults, showing that this is a very common feature. Uh, it can be treated. So for example, first uh, you would see a, a speech language pathologist who would give you ideas about how to swallow safely. And then you can also go in with the gastroenterologist stretching the upper part of the esophagus, which can improve swallowing. For most patients, we recommend taking a balanced multivitamin just because we can't measure all of those vitamins and nutrients that I mentioned, which are deficient for many patients. Uh, we do suggest that patients get checked for deficiencies, things that can be measured in the clinic, folic acid, uh, vitamin B12, vitamin D, uh, all of those things should be checked. And the other thing that we add in mitochondrial disease is ferritin, which are your iron stores, because iron is very important for mitochondrial function. And for most people, we want to keep the ferritin levels over about 50 uh, nanomoles per liter. Oh, and so in, in children and in some of the adults who have severe dysphagia after they you know, have tried multiple things like esophageal dilatation um, uh, or Botox to the upper esophageal sphincter, um, people are usually very reluctant to accept a G-tube, but often when people get a G-tube, they're relieved because they get better nutrients and then they can just uh, eat a little bit of fun food so they can still enjoy the social aspects of eating, but get good protein and uh, nutrition uh, through a G-tube. We also see that in children as well. So some of the kids that are falling off the growth curve, uh, you know, and you're fighting with them, they are not taking the mitochondrial cocktail, they're not taking their anti-epileptic drugs, they're not uh, getting enough nu nutrients. Getting a G-tube sometimes makes life for the child uh, wonderful and for the family and caregivers to give appropriate food. And usually you see the kids start to grow more and they usually do much better. So in general, for mitochondrial disease, we would suggest to avoid fasting for prolonged periods, uh, anything much over 10 to 12 hours, uh, people are probably gonna start getting a bit catabolic. Um, so therefore more frequent meals is uh, generally uh, better for people. Um, people specifically with complex one uh, deficiency uh, or if they have seizures or PDH deficiency, we'd recommend a high fat diet. But in general, we don't recommend a ketogenic diet or high fat diet uh, with those rare exceptions. I mentioned before, check ferritin because if ferritin levels are low, we wanna keep that over 50 because that's important for mitochondrial function. We suggest generally avoiding alcohol, keeping it to no more than two drinks per day. Uh, we certainly know with very high alcohol intake uh, that not only displaces calories and good nutrition, it also can be toxic to the mitochondria. And certainly for MELAS patients and others who might get migraines, there's certain foods that can be triggered. So, you know, try and avoid those like red wine, aged cheeses, et cetera. So let's turn to the mitochondrial uh, cocktail. Uh, first, I should have to blow my nose. I apologize. I'll be one sec.
there we go. Sorry about that. So with mitochondrial dysfunction, as I mentioned, there can be this backflow of electrons, which can lead to free radical production or reactive oxygen species, which can damage the cell. So part of many cocktails was to add antioxidants. Um, very early on, we realized that if you can't supply energy through this elaborate electron transport chain in the mitochondria, we could try alternative energy sources, things like uh, creatine. So people over the years have looked at a variety of different strategies. One is to try and bypass a defect. So for example, if your complex one is not working, giving coenzyme Q10 or to feed things into uh, complex two, like succinate and riboflavin as a strategy. Early on, folks felt that reducing lactate was an important strategy, and it may be in severe cases in the ICU where severe lactic acidosis, it's the actual proton from that that can cause damage. It, you you know, may wanna treat that. But in the long-term, uh, just trying to lower lactate with things like dichloroacetate uh, just doesn't make sense. Certainly in PDH deficiency, we recommend thiamine. Uh, and if you have a chronically elevated lactate, it's probably not a bad idea to take a bit of thiamine. Very non-toxic. Um, uh, the other name for that is vitamin B1. Antioxidants, I mentioned the rationale behind that. Things like vitamin E, alpha-lipoic acid, coenzyme Q10 are all antioxidants. It's important also to remember that not all antioxidants are the same. So things like vitamin C, uh, is in what's called the cytosol, not in the mitochondria. Vitamin E tends to go into membranes. CoQ10 and lipoic acid go into the mitochondria. So it's important to choose your antioxidants appropriately, uh, which I'll show you in a minute we did. We've talked about the exercise training. In Milas syndrome, there's quite good evidence that arginine is beneficial, especially during an acute stroke. And for anyone that's had a Milas stroke-like episode, we usually add arginine into the nutraceutical cocktail usually one gram three or four times a day. Uh, and then acutely, if there's a stroke, we give a large doses, usually 30 grams intravenously. As I mentioned, uh, checking for folate deficiency, which seems to be more common in mitochondrial patients than other disorders, and then replacing uh, to make sure that those levels get back to normal with folate, or in some cases, something called folinic acid. I won't talk about the tricetylurenine. But what's been the problem uh, with mitochondrial disease? Well, first of all, nobody funded the darn studies um, for uh, forever. And uh, all of the studies that I will be talking about were self-funded uh, through my own pocketbook. Um, UMDF, MitoCanada, there's just nobody funding uh, studies early on. Uh, everyone wanted a quote unquote cure, which uh, still obviously we don't have. And so therefore people were just doing small uh, case series open studies, which I think are totally useless. And what I mean by that is that if the doctors and the patients know what they're given, um, then they have a belief, a feeling they can influence, it's called the placebo effect, the outcome. So studies need to be double-blinded. So if something's not double-blinded, don't believe it and don't listen to the study. The other problem too is some of the early studies is the outcome variables. Um, people would, for example, give antioxidants and then measure strength. But obviously you're not gonna see a benefit on strength for years likely from an antioxidant. So things like um, uh, oxidative stress markers, um, markers of oxidative damage uh, would be a more appropriate outcome. The other thing is that many of the original studies used what we call redundant cocktails. So they would uh, use four or five of, of very similar antioxidants instead of using antioxidants that are working in different parts of the cell. Other times people would use only a single agent. So for example, uh, vitamin E. 
The problem with any antioxidant is that they can gain an electron, become reduced, but they can also give it back up. And so over a period of time, what initially is an antioxidant can become a pro-oxidant. So what we've suggested, uh, and you'll see our study in a minute, is to target what are called the three final common pathways of mitochondrial dysfunction. And that is to target the free radicals where they're being generated in the mitochondria, to provide an alternative energy source for the cell, because if you can't use your mitochondria, the cell tries to use sugar and makes lactic acid. But there's another source called phosphocreatine, which we'll talk about. And then to try and improve the flux in the uh, mitochondria, uh, either to bypass things like bypassing complex one with CoQ10 uh, or succinate uh, is, is another strategy. So one of the things that we looked at years and years ago, this is 1999, which shows how old I am. My first grad student and I did muscle biopsies from a variety of different patients. And what we found was very low creatine stores in patients with mitochondrial disease, muscular dystrophy, and inflammatory myopathies. So at the time, people knew that you could give creatine to people who were doing sports and improve the amount of creatine that was in their muscle. So we wondered if this would make sense in our patients. So what is creatine? Every person uh, on this talk uh, makes creatine every day. Uh, first, our kidneys um, manufacture um, um, uh, a precursor uh, called, uh, excuse me, guanidinoacetate. And then in the liver, it's converted into creatine. So these are amino acids. So creatine is not an amino acid, but it's made from amino acids. And I'll show you here. So the guanidinoacetate is made predominantly from the kidneys, but a little bit from the pancreas goes to the liver where it's converted to creatine. So all of us right now are making creatine in our liver. It's spit out into the bloodstream and taken up by muscle and brain. And think about mitochondrial disease, muscle and brain, frequently affected. And creatine levels in our patients in the muscle were extremely low. And creatine is very important in the provision of energy for uh, cells. It's anaerobic, so it could compensate for a deficient mitochondria. And the cell smart, and that's probably why it was low is if mitochondria don't work, you crank through your creatine. But we knew that you can also increase your stores by taking more in your diet. So most of us, if we're meat eaters, do get some creatine about one gram per day. Vegan vegetarians get absolutely nothing in their diet. And that's been shown that even able-bodied people have very low levels in their muscle if they are vegans. And then eventually it's converted to creatinine and spit out through the kidneys. So why is it important? When our muscles start to contract, as you see here, uh, we use ATP, which is the final energy currency of the cell, to, uh, to support the energy supply for many things, keeping our membranes intact, keeping calcium where it's supposed to be, allowing our nerves to send transmission, et cetera, et cetera. So what happens is when the cell starts to contract, uh, we lose this ATP very rapidly. And so therefore, we have stores of what's called phosphocreatine, which then rapidly turn your ADP back to ATP to try and buffer it or keep your energy stores up. What's interesting is that this interesting relationship happens that when the cell is under stress and we lose our ATP, the creatine that's formed here actually goes into the mitochondria and kickstarts the mitochondria. And it's known that if you knock out the enzymes involved in creatine metabolism, you have a severe reduction in muscle contraction. So it is involved in this interesting link between what's called the cytosol and our mitochondria. Studies have shown in variety of animal models and patients uh, with different neurologic disorders that we can increase muscle mass, especially in older adults, 
strength and power has been shown to go up uh, with creatine supplementation in aging and in um, uh, patients who are doing athletics. Um, various animal models of ALS, Huntington's and Parkinson's, it attenuates the damage to uh, a central nervous system. It can provide antioxidant protection. And interestingly, when they uh, do a stroke model in animals, so you ligate off the carotid artery, induce a stroke, if the animals are preloaded with creatine, there's much less damage. So again, it'd be a very difficult study to do, but when I think about my MILAS patients with stroke-like episodes, having your brain preloaded with creatine, it's likely to confer some benefit if you're unfortunate to have a stroke-like episode. And there's been some studies that show that creatine alone can enhance mitochondrial function. So this is just one study showing the benefits in an animal model. I won't go through all of it, uh, but essentially what they do is they use a, a toxin called 3-nitropropionic acid. When you give it to animals, it induces damage very similar to Huntington's disease. So you can see the white area here, that's a loss of neurons induced by this toxin. And you can see how white it is here. That means there's fewer cells. The difference between this animal and this animal is this animal was pre-treated with creatine. So you can see that there's less loss of cells, both at the macroscopic level and the microscopic level. And they also showed uh, lower oxidative stress, better maintenance of ATP. So we did this, um, uh, we did a study, I should say, uh, using creatine in boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It was a um, study with 30 uh, boys, half from Toronto from one clinic and half from ours. It was a randomized controlled trial, which means that neither we nor the patients nor the parents knew what people were on at the time when the study was going on. And only after we collected the data and we do what's called a data lock so that nobody can manipulate the data, uh, then we're told who was on what and we can run the stats on it. So we gave them five grams of creatine and we did a bunch of outcomes, which I won't get into in too much detail. Bottom line is that over the uh, period of time when they were taking creatine, there was less drop in their muscle um, uh, uh, strength. There was an increase in their hand grip of their dominant hand, which again shows that there's likely an interaction between uh, creatine and exercise. There was an increase in fat-free mass, and there was a reduction in a marker of bone breakdown. This was also found in a Belgium study and at first I didn't believe it. And I said, oh, there's no way it's gonna affect bone. Uh, and sure enough, we measured it in our study and we found the same thing that it uh, decreased bone breakdown. Subsequent to that, we've done studies with prednisone in animals to cause bone uh, damage and osteoporosis. And the creatine has been shown to be beneficial. And that's important because these boys are often treated with corticosteroids. So we tried uh, creatine in patients with mitochondrial disease uh, many years ago. Again, no one funded it, so this was self-funded. We had seven MILAS uh, patients and uh, CPO patients, randomized double-blind trial. When I say a crossover, that means that everyone received a placebo and everyone received the drug. Double-blind means that we didn't know, nor did they, what they were on. And what it showed essentially is that their strength improved as they were fatiguing. So if you grip and relax, grip and relax, and keep doing that for a minute, you can see, of course, people are going to get fatigued. That's in um, uh, purple here. But with creatine, there was about an 11% uh, improvement uh, so that you get more bang for your buck, uh, but 11% uh, greater uh, force as your muscles are fatiguing. Now, again, it was only a short study, so we didn't see an increase in VO2. Um, so we, we haven't gone longer to see if the, it's eventually going to improve the mitochondria. But certainly for activities like, you know, you're going to rake leaves or vacuum or something, that's, you know, sort of a short-term higher intensity activity. Uh, there may be a boost just from the creatine alone. 
So creatine has been studied in a variety of st uh, studies. Many of these are plagued by what I've uh, pointed out before, small sample size. Um, uh, you can see even our study, fairly small sample size. And this study here was interesting. Um, uh, back, uh, they had the biggest sample size of 16. They concluded there was no effect, but actually uh, on some of their outcomes, there was a 23% improvement. But because of statistics, they said it wasn't statistically significant, uh, but none of these showed any significant side effects. So one of the things, as I mentioned, is those are single agents. Uh, given the final common pathways, it's more likely that if we treat a number of different uh, pathways at the same time, we're going to get more benefit. And if you look at things like chemotherapy for leukemia, uh, once you started using combinations, that's where they really started to make inroads into treating patients and improving survival rates. We did this also with an MDX mouse model. That's a mouse model of Duchenne, where we showed that creatine, which I showed you was beneficial, prednisone, which is the standard of care, once we added a variety of different antioxidants and mixed them all together, that's where we consistently saw the benefits far greater than prednisone, which is the current standard of care, and greater than creatine, which is also a standard of care. So you can see here, uh, these are a variety of different supplements that we gave individually or in combination. That's what the COMB means. So this is uh, beta-HMB, which is a metabolite of leucine, which can improve muscle mass, creatine, alpha lipoic acid and antioxidant, conjugated linoleic acid to try and decrease body fat because that's a problem for many of our patients, prednisone standard of care. Then we combine them all together and then combine all of them together with prednisone. And what the numbers represent is across all of these different um, outcome metrics, which reflect benefit of the therapy, we've ranked them which one was the best. So number one is always the best. And you can see consistently, our best scores really was when we combined everything together. And so it gets to the point that targeting multiple final common pathways known to be associated with the disease is more effective than just an individual uh, agent. Hence, the mitochondrial cocktail concept has been around. Now, again, very poorly studied. Uh, this uh, was one study in 1993 uh, where they had 16 patients, uh, some with deletions and point mutations, huge range in age. So, I mean, right there, you're going to get a lot of variability in it. And they had an open-labeled study. So again, I really don't believe open-labeled studies, but given that there's so few, I'm just going to point this out. They use CoQ10, vitamin K, I'm not really sure why, a multivitamin, thiamine, and riboflavin, and vitamin C. So kind of, a, a, I would say, not a very uh, accurately or, or carefully targeted um, uh, final common pathway. And uh, no surprise, they didn't measure anything that was statistically significant. But again, huge range of patients, open-labeled study, and poorly targeted supplements. Now, this is a study I thought that was, um, uh, you know, perhaps a little tighter. Uh, these were folks with Liebers, CPO, and other uh, point mutations. And what they did is they gave a mitochondrial cocktail, but drew blood samples and measured the mitochondrial function in the white blood cells. Uh, CoQ10, Carnitine, again, I'm not a huge fan of carnitine unless your levels are low to bring them back to normal. Uh, even though everyone, their dog uh, with mitochondrial disease seems to be prescribed carnitine, it only is logical if your uh, blood levels are low to get you back to a normal range. But no one has ever shown benefits of carnitine on its own if your levels are sufficient, except in rare carnitine deficiency syndrome. And what they found was that the CoQ10 level, which is important because some of the earlier variants weren't well absorbed, went up fivefold. But in the white blood cells, they showed an increase in mitochondrial-derived ATP production, uh, which was pretty interesting. 
but again, um, didn't do any other human functional outcomes. This was all in white blood cells. So what we did is uh, we decided to do a randomized double-blind crossover study uh, targeting the mitochondrial antioxidants. So we gave coenzyme Q10, which is part of the mitochondrial uh, respiratory chain, vitamin E to protect the mitochondrial membrane, creatine for reasons we've described, and alpha-lipoic acid. And we had 16 patients with proven mitochondrial disease, um, all genetically confirmed, randomized double-blind crossover. So everyone got the placebo and the drug with an appropriate two-month washout. What we found is the CoQ10 that we gave was absorbed. And when they were on it, the, the levels did go up. We had a marker of oxidative stress damage to the mitochondria, or sorry, to DNA that went down. We also showed that lactate went down, which indirectly means that the mitochondrial function went up. And we showed that isoprostanes went down. Now, again, self-funded, so you know we couldn't provide this to, to people for a year to look at quality of life and other outcomes, but all of the metrics which reflect mitochondrial dysfunction improved. We were criticized, though. People said, well, you know, it's a cocktail. You know, we don't know exactly what's working. Why don't you just do a study on CoQ10? Maybe that's what's uh, giving you all the benefit. So there have been a number of studies with uh, CoQ10 that have shown that there's been a benefit. Again, you know, some of these are very small studies. Some have shown no benefit. Uh, safety seems to be very good. Um, so we decided to, again, uh, you know, uh, show the naysayers, um, you know, did it work or not? So we did an even larger study with 30 patients with definite mitochondrial disease, same design, two months on, two months off, and two months on the opposite uh, therapy with high dose coenzyme Q10. And this is the Qzorb form, which some of you might be familiar with, which is well absorbed from Tishcon. We measured MR spectroscopy of the brain, lactate, oxidative stress, and cycle ergometry. And essentially we saw no effect of uh, this on lactate or oxidative stress, tiny improvements in cycle ergometry and a small decrease in choline compounds in the brain, uh, the significance of which is unclear. So the point being is that as we had planned originally, the targeted multi-ingredient cocktail is more logical and makes sense in mitochondrial diseases as opposed to single agents. And I'll finish with just a, a few um, tidbits on some things that we've uh, come across more recently. And this was something I stumbled upon in one of my patients who was told from her family doctor that she had osteopenia. And if you look at her, she's got Kern-Sayer syndrome. She looks like skin and bones, like cachectic, and you think, oh my goodness, this person is so underweight. But in order to measure the uh, bone density, we do a thing called a DEXA scan, which also gives us body composition. So normally, if uh, people are familiar with this uh, thing called the body mass index or BMI, that's how most people and certainly populations measure obesity. If it's over 30, you're considered to be obese. If it's under 17, you're considered to be underweight. And so we had this uh, patient with mitochondrial disease who came in as I mentioned, and what we found is that she was underweight, um, which is exactly what you would think by BMI. She looked cachectic, but when we did her DEXA scan, she was obese. So her percent body fat uh, was over 40. So anything over 30 in females is considered obese. So the point there is that the body mass index is a very insensitive measure for obesity. And everything in gray here are patients who are obese, but by body mass index, they're uh, determined to be either normal weight uh, or underweight. And you can see all of those disorders that we've talked about with uh, either primary mitochondrial disease or secondary mitochondrial dysfunction 
almost 80% of our patients are obese. And that's greater than the general population. In Iceland, where I am right now, 33% uh, of patients are obese. In the US, in some states, uh, over 80% of people are overweight or obese. The problem there is obesity on its own makes it hard to get around and increases your risk for uh, things like heart disease and diabetes. So we've done some studies to both improve uh, muscle mass and to lower uh, body fat. The most common weight loss supplement that's available is something called conjugated linoleic acid, which is a derivative of milk. And we did a study in older men and women where we gave them creatine, which we've previously shown improved muscle strength, but didn't lower body fat. Uh, plus we gave them the CLA. And what we found was when they were on the creatine and CLA, there was a greater increase in muscle mass and a greater decrease in body fat. So we're now using this term called the ripped ratio for the young kids. You know, they want to get ripped. They want more muscle and less body fat. Uh, we're using scientifically something called the body composition index, which we think is a better reflection of health. And that is your lean mass and your muscle, uh, sorry, lean mass and your fat mass. And we express the ratio between the two, which gives you a better reflection of body compositional health, if you will. Less body fat, more muscle mass is better for people. So we've uh, gone on, this is stuff that we've uh, done in our uh, company to help with obesity. And we're going to be checking this out in patients with uh, myotonic dystrophy type one and FSH dystrophy. And uh, I'll show you also we're tweaking things for uh, primary mitochondrial disease. So what we did is that we did some studies with uh, the high fat fed mouse. So if you take uh, mice here and you give them a really high fat diet, which is you know, what a lot of people in North America are eating, they become obese. And so what we did is we looked at a number of different combinations, but eventually came up with what we call trim seven, which are the essential seven ingredients, which was green tea extract, green coffee bean extract, and a mint extract called forscolin. And then as is the case for all of our supplements, we use what we call the mitochondrial core, which is alpha lipoic acid, coenzyme Q10 and vitamin E, which as you saw from our mitochondrial study that we published years ago, we know that that combination is effective. But we also added uh, beetroot, which contains nitrates as well, because more recent data shows that this can improve mitochondrial efficiency. So this has been published uh, recently in this journal. And uh, one of my colleagues didn't believe me. Um, so uh, Rick Austin said, oh, there's no way that your stuff uh, is going to uh, prevent against obesity. So we gave him the stuff blinded. And this is uh, his data showing the high fat fed mice and those treated with trim seven, you can see the reduction in body fat compared to the, just the high fat fed. So these guys were high fat fed, but they also took the trim seven. You can also see over here, this is uh, gonna be one of the uh, biggest healthcare issues in North America in the next few years, and that's called fatty liver disease. You can see the fat in the liver here compared to a normal liver, almost back to normal with the, the trim seven. This is the fat under the microscope in red. Uh, so this is the high fat diet. And then with the uh, trim seven, you can see it's almost back to normal and, and almost as good as exercise. So we've done all sorts of stuff I won't get into. I'll just show you the mitochondrial stuff and how this is working is increasing mitochondrial capacity in the fat cells. So these are fat cells. And what we did is looked at PGC1 alpha, which is the uh, main sort of pathway which turns on mitochondria. This is the high fat diet. And uh, this is actually their trim seven here. The important point, however, is everything that we saw was better if you combined it with exercise. So the metabolic enhancer, trim seven plus exercise was better than exercise alone, and it was better than trim seven alone. So the point there is 
uh, it is additive to and it works in the context of and better with exercise. So we've even done a clinical trial, uh, which I'm hoping to get the final manuscript today from Josh, uh, who's my postdoc and uh, actually just got a job last week as an assistant professor. So we looked at 60 overweight men and women. We gave them three months of either Trim7 or placebo and the FDA and Health Canada wants to look at weight loss. So you can see in green, there was a greater proportion of people who took the Trim7 who lost weight versus those on placebo. Now, one of the things that's important, uh, as I mentioned before, is body mass index um, and even weight are, can be misleading because you don't know how much is lean mass, how much is fat. So we did a DEXA scan. And why this is important is that the two strategies in North America are bariatric surgery and GLP-1 receptor agonists, a thing called Ozempic to lose weight. But with both of them, you lose muscle mass. And what we found is that of this weight loss, uh, it was all fat and no muscle loss. From a fatty liver perspective, we've shown that some of the markers of fatty liver improved. So we've also been looking at other cocktails um, to try and improve or come up with the optimal cocktail for people with mitochondrial disease. So we know with aging, as I mentioned before, there's this mitochondrial dysfunction. And this was a study that came out in uh, this journal just a few weeks ago. And we looked at skin cells from older women who had mitochondrial dysfunction. And we came up with this new mitochondrial enhancing cocktail. What we found is that some of the uh, uh, pathways which turn on mitochondria called PPAR gamma went up. TFAM, which is one of the mitochondrial biogenesis markers went up. But importantly, what we found is that the mitochondrial proteins themselves, you can see here, so this is the active um, uh, compound versus a placebo. There was an improvement pretty much across the board in the mitochondria. What's interesting too, is that the antioxidant called superoxide dismutase type two, which is in the mitochondria, went up as well, uh, which can help to protect the mitochondria from that oxidative stress. So you can see here the mitoproteins going up. And what we're doing with this is we were a little bit surprised how well it was working. But the first thing we thought is this is going to be great for patients with mitochondrial disease. So we're uh, uh, tweaking this a little bit. And we have a grant from MitoCanada and we're trying to come up with the optimal combination. But even this, uh, we're very optimistic uh, that this could be uh, beneficial in patients uh, with Leber's hereditary optic uh, neuropathy and uh, children with complex one Lee disease. Those are the cells that we're now treating with this to see if uh, we can improve things. And we have a few other uh, iterations of this cocktail that we're working on. So when we think about uh, Liebers, I'll just finish with my last slide here. As uh, most of you are aware, this is a very common mitochondrial disease. Uh, it's heralded by what we call centrosecal visual loss. So you lose the vision in the middle of your eye, but you maintain the periphery usually reasonably well usually affects men much more than women, often in teenage years or early uh, 20s. One eye first, usually rapidly followed by the other eye, usually goes down. There can be some recovery in the first 18 months. We're doing some research now. Uh, we have a grant to study whether sunlight is a contributing factor. We think it is. People have shown that smoking is a factor. And uh, we also think that menopause in women is another factor when you lose the protective effects of estrogen because estrogen is probably why women uh, tend to have uh, less uh, optic um, damage versus men when they carry this gene. And the uh, standard treatment has been idebenone for years, 
uh, the study had pretty marginal benefits, um, but that's become sort of the standard of care because of that one study. And we're now in our um, uh, study comparing idabenone to our various mitochondrial uh, cocktails. Generally, what we do now is we provide the full mitochondrial cocktail because idabenone really is just a form of coenzyme Q10. And as I pointed out before, single compounds are never going to be as good as uh, combinations. So in Canada, in Ontario, I should say, uh, we have a program called the Inherited Metabolic Disease Program, which uh, funds uh, stuff based on scientific literature after it goes through a committee. And we now provide the mitochondrial cocktail free of charge in Ontario to our patients with Liebers, a high dose for the first uh, uh, two years after the visual loss. Then we drop it to 50%. We also get them to avoid sunlight with proper UV protection glasses, a cap. Um, we identify people who are at risk. Uh, so for example, if one kid goes blind, he's got a younger brother, then we usually put them on a preventative cocktail. Uh, as uh, people get older, we check for things that can damage your eyes like glaucoma, cataracts. And as I mentioned, uh, we're really excited to see if we can come up with a better cocktail for people with Liebers and complex one Lee disease. So with that, I'll just uh, thank all the folks in the clinic, uh, collaborators across uh, North America, um, Aaron, my research coordinator, uh, Linda, my nurse, Lauren, our genetic counselor, uh, Kristen, who's also one of our exercise technicians, and the funding sources, uh, Exokine, our company, CIHR, Mito Canada, Warren Lambert, uh, Dan Wright, and the Children's Hospital Foundation. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Tarnopolsky. This is really informative, and we have quite a few questions that have come in. So we'll get started if you're still filling up to um, answering some questions. Yeah, Perfect. I'm good to go. I just gotta blow my nose, I'll be one nope, Go ahead. Okay, so the first question is, for children, what age do you recommend to begin strength training? Yeah, so I think for kids, you don't want to do strength training or endurance training. You want them to have fun. And that's a critical thing for children is uh, even for adults, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to do it. So if somebody told me to swim, I'd rather stick a needle in my eye. Uh, but if somebody told me to run on trails, I mean, it's the most exciting and best thing in the world I could possibly do. And other people I'm sure would think the opposite. So the point I think with kids is if you can get them into activities that they enjoy, they're going to be active. And that's the critical thing for children. So give them what I call a smorgasbord of activity. Uh, find what they like. Some kids might like karate. Some might like soccer. Some might like trail running, um, you know, or cross-country skiing, whatever it might be. Um, and really, it's, it's a lot of work for the parents, but you got to expose the kids to a variety of activities. Find what they enjoy get them good quality coaching, good equipment, and encourage them to, you know, titrate into it. And again, some people might say, well, my child's got some balance issues. Um, you know, they get fatigued when they first start exercising. Talk to a skilled coach. You know, if they don't listen to your needs and help uh, adapt to the child's issues, find a new coach. Because I tell you, um, uh, you know, I did karate with my daughter, for example, for a while. And there were a number of kids with developmental coordination disorder, autism, and other things. And our sensei was so good about accommodating those kids. And after three or four months, you know, these kids with developmental coordination disorder that, you know, would trip over their feet when they first came in were more coordinated than an able-bodied kid that wasn't doing karate. It was unbelievable. So I, I think that's the most important thing with kids. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, also related to strength training, 
Um, when you talked about the study, how long did clients rest between the three sets? And does, does that impact the efficacy of doing the workout if you have yeah. rest time? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So for example, if I do um, what we call um, um, uh, reps to failure, so I do you know um, 10 reps with 20 pounds and then I, I can't do another one. So my muscles fatigue, an able-bodied person, it's around two minutes before that muscle will rebuild back up the uh, phosphocreatine levels to do that again. With mitochondrial disease, it's a little bit longer. So you've got to listen to your body and figure out what rest period works best for you. Start with two minutes, but if you're fatiguing too much, you know, try and go to three minutes or four minutes or five minutes. But if it takes you 10 minutes, what you do is do your biceps first, then go and do hand grip then go and do some crunches, then go and do some hamstrings, then go and do some knee extension. By the time you've gone through that circuit and you go back to your bicep, that muscle's rested for 10 minutes and that phosphocreatine should be back up to normal. So there's no problem if it takes you 10 minutes to go through a circuit. And I would strongly suggest that everyone who exercises with mitochondrial disease or muscular dystrophy use that approach called a circuit set where you have like 10 different things that you do with different muscles so that the muscle that you first exercised has time to recover. Um, right. And uh, you will still get the adaptations versus, you know, what the bodybuilders do. They'll do, you know, a standard set where they just keep hammering and hammering on the biceps. I totally would suggest that that's not the way to do it. Yeah. We're not, we're not, uh, bodybuilding, right? <laughs> um, so um, this is a comment, Anna, and a question. Um, with exercise, I've been told up, up to but not beyond fatigue. This seems to be a good guideline for me when I go beyond fatigue, I pay for it, sometimes for days. What are your thoughts about this philosophy? Well, there's a, a couple of things. I mean, there's no question that every person who exercises will experience fatigue. I mean, that's normal for myotonic dystrophy, for Duchenne, for FSH, for mitochondrial disease. And it's the recovery that's important. And that's the thing that most people fail to realize um, is it's the sleep afterwards. It's uh, taking in some good quality nutrition when you finish to try and replenish those energy stores. So oftentimes when people are still fatigued the next day, two or three days later, they either haven't had a good sleep, uh, they didn't have good post-exercise nutrition, they exercised uh, in a catabolic state. So they fasted for too long before they exercised, but still you've got to listen to your body, find out what works for you, taking into account all of those aspects of sleep, um, uh, nutritional status when you go into it, post-exercise nutrition. Um, and for some people, wait a little bit longer before you exercise that muscle again and, and try different things. So what we generally recommend is that people do some sort of an aerobic activity three times a week, and then you can add in some more resistance activity on alternate days so that you're not exercising the exact same way uh, too frequently. But for some people, it might be every two days to do the same thing. Some people, it might be every three days. But as long as you listen to your body and mix it up, and, uh, you know, think about things like I've got on my wrist here, this is a thing called an Ura ring. And I know that some of the other watches have sleep functions, but it's so important for mitochondrial disease patients more than probably anyone to have good quality sleep because sleep is linked to these things called clock genes, which replenish our mitochondria. And so I would encourage a lot of people to really pay attention to optimizing your sleep because that's when you recover. That's when the mitochondria get replenished. 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've got lots of questions about the cocktail. Um, what are your thoughts about, um, I'm sorry. So should we be concerned if the multivitamins contain cornstarch, palm and or sunflower oil, natural flavors and dyes? No, I wouldn't be worried about that. There is uh, some evidence that certain dyes in sensitive children can, uh, can lead to some behavioral issues, but the amount that's contained in a multivitamin is going to be pretty small. And the volume of some of the other components that you talked about is infinitesimal from a nutrient and biological effect. So I really would not be too concerned about that. I think the most important thing is think about the big ones, iron, vitamin D, B12, folic acid, and carnitine. You know, these are the ones that we can measure and ones that are really going to impact function if they're low. So treating a deficiency is the first guideline to any nutritional strategy. So I think that's critically important. And then treat your deficiencies and then create and, and use an optimal uh, mitochondrial cocktail on top of it. Balance it. Well, and that, that rolls into the next question um, that asks, are there any contraindications for mitopatients to take iron when they are deficient? Yeah. So if you're deficient, uh, yeah, you can have side effects. So some people get constipated. Some people get GI upset, uh, when they take, uh, iron. And so, you know, if, if you get those things, that would be, I guess, a contraindication, it's more a side effect, but there's, there's strategies around that. So, um, certainly a lot of people are cutting back on their red meat, which is, you know, probably the best absorbed form of iron called heme. Uh, but if you can, you know, increasing red meat intake is a natural way of trying to get a bit more bioavailable iron, uh, mother nature, um, you know, was smart and mother nature had all of these things normally coming in with food. So I find a lot of the GI upset and intolerances is when people take supplements outside of their normal food. And yes, there's certain foods that can bind iron and other things and limit the absorption a little bit, but it's far better to get something in that you can tolerate versus taking uh, nutrients on an empty stomach where most people will be intolerant. So even our trim seven, I mean, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, and you know, I'm completely conflicted as my company and stuff, but I would never take that stuff on an empty stomach. Uh, I, I tried it once. I had the worst heartburn. It was horrible. And the same thing's true of our mitochondrial patients. If they take the cocktail on an empty stomach, all of them will have GI intolerance, which you will with, with pretty much any supplement um, will, will cause that. So take it with food and what's really bizarre. And I don't even understand the biology here. And that is when you're eating your food, you start eating then you take your supplements, then you keep eating on top of it. If you eat and then take your supplements, you'd think that it would mix up in your stomach. But, you know, anecdotally from our patients and myself, I find that I get more heartburn if I take the supplements after I've eaten, even though in theory, it should all mix up in my stomach. So a little practical tip uh, that we realized over 26 years uh, makes it a big difference. Oh, that's interesting. The order of operations matter, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, next question is, is, is the ubiquinone favored for use over ubiquinol or was the ubiquinone the first choice to be used in the trial that you shared? Yeah. So this is a, 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 a huge, there's a whole bunch of myths. I mean, in, in the whole mitochondrial space, even amongst the top people in the world, I had a, a big uh, a debate, uh, which I ended up winning because I was correct about, you know, never use ringers lactate in mitochondrial patients, which is the dumbest suggestion in the history of mankind, which I won't get into, but there's all these other things too, like, oh, ubiquinol is better. 
I mean, a lot of that comes from a company that was trying to sell stuff so that because other companies were starting to sell uh, ubiquinone, which is the original coenzyme Q10. So essentially ubiquinone and ubiquinol is oxidized and reduced. So people were saying, oh, well, you know, you should probably, you know, use the uh, ubiquinol because you're going to gain an electron and it's going to work better. But in the body, when you mix uh, food together, it gets absorbed and it gets brought into your tissues the redox state that it started with is not the redox state that it ends up with. So at the end of the day, the most important thing is randomized double blind trials with the other components of the cocktail and taking samples from real humans in their blood after all of these have been mixed, taken up and absorbed by the body. And did you lower oxidative stress? And did you lower lactate? Did you improve function in some capacity? And all I can say is that with ubiquinone, um, which is not the ubiquinol that everyone's pushing now, that plus lipoic acid plus vitamin E and creatine lowered markers of oxidative stress in real people in a randomized trial. So I don't know what would happen if we used ubiquinol, but I already got a benefit. So I'm likely not going to get more of a benefit. It could actually right. even go in the opposite direction. So again, a lot of this is hand-waving and it's uh, you know driven by companies who you know did some simple absorption studies with single compounds and said, oh, it's been a little bit better absorbed and then extrapolated that to say it's better in a cocktail, but it's show me the data. Mm, interesting. Um, the next question is, um, can you explain more about why, what you briefly said about sugars and lactic acid? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I said anything about sugars and lactic Bottom line is, is that if we take a bolus of sugar um, and we have mitochondrial dysfunction, a whole bunch of free sugar will flux through glycolysis and won't be able to go into the mitochondria and you're gonna generate more lactate. Lactate isn't the issue, it's the proton that comes with it. So that's where the acidosis comes from is that when you get that lactate, this proton comes out. So it's, it's, it's never a good idea, I think, to take huge boluses of simple sugar. You know, it's not a good uh, dietary strategy to begin with uh, because you're gonna displace other nutrients. Uh, you know, so sugary drinks, soft drinks and stuff. I mean, they should be banned from humanity. Uh, there's absolutely no value to a soft drink other than maybe an adventure race if you're racing for 24 hours, but uh, simple sugars are never good. And clearly we see when we do glucose tolerance tests in able-bodied people or obese people, the lactate will go up after you suck back some sugar. And it is actually a, a form of stressing the mitochondria in patients where giving them sugar to see the lactate go up uh, is a way to, from a diagnostic perspective. So I would just avoid simple sugars. Um, you know, the closer you can get to nature, um, the more complex your food, um, uh, I think the better, the more processed it is. It's, it's just never good for us across the board. Obesity, you know, uh, everything, um, mitochondrial patients yeah. need to think about their long-term health. Absolutely. Two more questions about the mitococktail, and then we're gonna, we're gonna let you go. Cause I know you don't feel well and you've been such a true. <laughs> um, Thanks. I, there's a question coming in from, um, an adult patient who has CPEO. And her question is, yeah. are there, are there contents of the mitococktail that can help potentially avoid having to take a statin? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, wow, yeah. So statin medications, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, block something called HMG-CoA reductase, uh, which is a, a step uh, before you make um, uh, cholesterol. The problem is, is that in addition to the step before you make cholesterol, it also is a step before you make coenzyme Q10. 
So it's a relative contraindication for people who have mitochondrial disease to take a statin because you're going to then get secondary CoQ10 deficiency. And uh, Renee Vladechu, who used to run the lab in Buffalo, uh, some of you might know her, a good friend and colleague, she's recently retired, but we published some papers early on showing you could unmask mitochondrial disease or patient with mitochondrial disease are more sensitive is another way of thinking about it. So what I would say is that everything in life is risk benefit. And if you've got very high cholesterol and you've got a family history or other risk factors for heart disease, it still may be prudent to take a statin. If you're taking a statin as a mitochondrial patient, absolutely make sure that you're also taking coenzyme Q10. And I would take it for at least two weeks before you start your statin so you don't become secondarily deficient in coenzyme Q10. So clearly, if you're on a statin, you, you really have to have coenzyme Q10 on board if you've got mitochondrial disease. So I think that's critical. However, you still can get statin-induced uh, rhabdomyolysis, which affects 0.1% of patients uh, because that process is independent. It's through a process called prenylation. So the CoQ10 may not protect you against that. Um, but, but that's the first thing. Number two, you know, if you get the myalgias uh, still, you know, report that to your doctor and you may have to stop them. The good news now is that we have another uh, drug called PCSK9 inhibitors, which if you fail a statin or are intolerant, uh, PCSK9 inhibitor is a, a good option as well. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, and the last question is, can you just talk a little bit about the role of vitamin C in the mitococcal? Yeah, we don't use it um, and we've never used it. Um, part of the reason for that is vitamin C uh, is a cytosolic. So it, it pretty much is an antioxidant in the cytosol. But the issue with mitochondrial disease is the reactive oxygen species or free radicals are generated in the mitochondria. So you need antioxidants that will either go into the mitochondrial membrane like vitamin E or go into the mitochondria like alpha lipoic acid and CoQ10, which absolutely get into the mitochondria because that's where they're found. Uh, the, the CoQ10 is, is embedded there between complex one and two um, before it goes to complex three. And uh, alpha lipoic acid is involved in branch chain ketoacid dehydrogenase activity, PDH activity, which are both mitochondrial enzymes. So uh, we, we have no use for it. We've never put it in there, but you know, if, if whatever you feel it's gonna help you with, with uh, cold severity, um, you know, there's no harm in taking vitamin C. But again, yeah. uh, people should be careful because unless things have been studied in combination, you never know what the outcome is going to be. And there was a study uh, published in PNAS, a, a good journal a few years ago, where vitamin C and vitamin E were given to uh, people who were uh, um, a, a, a doing an exercise program, uh, and they found that it completely blunted the benefits of exercise. And so that's not a good thing. Now, again, I don't, I'm not saying it's vitamin C, but specifically C plus E together blunted the benefits of exercise, and they didn't get the benefits from a cardiovascular and diabetes perspective. Um, whereas our TRIM-7, we've studied it in the animals uh, with uh, exercise, and it doubled the benefits and didn't blunt any of the benefits of exercise. Thank you for that. And, and again, I would say, you know, before you add or take away anything, make sure you're having a conversation with your doctor. Um, Absolutely. And the, the triple effects of, of adding anything or removing anything from your mitococcal. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Tarnoploski. I, I can't thank you enough because I know you're not feeling well today, but despite you still gave us your all, and we really, really 
appreciate that. We're so grateful Thanks. to you for your ongoing commitment to the support of the MITO community. And these issues that we discussed today are so critical in helping individuals live their best quality of life despite their diagnosis with MITO. And so we appreciate you helping us better understand how nutrition and exercise can improve their, uh, our family's day-to-day -day journeys. So thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thank Thanks you very much. Yes, thank you to each and every one of you for joining us for today's monthly Mito Expert series. As a reminder, again, this presentation will be available on the Mito Action website in the coming days. Um, it, we apologize if we didn't get to all of your questions, um, but maybe perhaps we could email those to Dr. Tarner Poloski and get back to you at a later time when he's feeling a little bit better. So have a wonderful weekend, everyone. We look forward to staying in touch and seeing you again next time. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.